Amen. For those that are visiting with us, my name is Chris Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, Dr. Young is on vacation, will be back with us next week, but he will not be teaching next Wednesday night. Uh, He will resume his history of the Reformation that he started last week in two more weeks, but you don't want to miss next week because Jonathan Todd is going to be leading a panel up here with some of our elders from Grace, and uh, we're going to be hearing about some of the ins and outs of eldership at Grace of Anne. Uh, Jonathan did something similar in his class last year, this time, and it was very well received, so we decided to do it on a Wednesday night, so definitely want to be here for that. And don't forget, the reason we're doing that is because we are in the month of October and we are nominating uh, men for the Office of Elders, so you can pick up one of these if you have not. There's a few up here, you can pick one up afterward. You can nominate as many men as you like, men that fit the description as described in the passages mentioned on the blue card. All right, I am going to test your listening comprehension right off the bat. I want you to turn to a number of passages all at the same time. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 1, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, and Matthew 10. Huh? Hold your place in Hebrews 1, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, and Matthew 10. In a minute, I'm going to make a quick reference to each of these rather quickly, and uh, it might be helpful if you're already there. One last time, Hebrews 1, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, and Matthew 10. Tonight, we are doing a topical study on the teaching known as God's providence. So normally when we pop in for a week, we pick a passage of scripture, we break it down, we teach it verse by verse, and that's a good thing to do. But certain times there, uh, it's appropriate to hone in on a particular topic and study the Bible that way. So that's what we're going to do tonight as we think about God's providence. Now, if you've been around the church very long, maybe you've heard of God's providence, but what does it mean? That's our, the first Uh, issue before us tonight. First, we need to know that though they are similar, God's sovereignty and God's providence are not the same thing. So God's sovereignty refers to his status as the sovereign over all things. The fact that he alone has absolute power and absolute control. God's providence, on the other hand, refers to God's outworking of his sovereign will. His working out of his sovereign power and sovereign control in space and time. Really starting all the way back at creation. So according to God's sovereign will, he determined that he would create the world. And then in his providence, he executed his sovereign will by creating all things. However, not only did God create all that has been created, he certainly did that, but in his providence, he also sustains all things and he governs all things. The famous Puritan theologian John Owen spoke of God's providence this way, there is nothing which almighty God has made that with the good hand of providence, he does not govern and sustain. There is nothing 
which Almighty God has made, that with the good hand of providence he does not govern and sustain. God governs and sustains all things, and the act of him doing so is called his providence. Now, as we look at this teaching in various scriptures, you're not going to see the word providence. It's kind of like when we study the Trinity. You know the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but there are many places that we can look and see the Trinity. It's just a word, a doctrinal word that theologians have come up with to, to summarize a biblical teaching. Uh, you will see the truth that God governs and sustains all things, and we know that that is called God's providence. All right, first in Hebrews, in the second half of Hebrews 1 verse 3, we see God's sustaining providence. Second half of Hebrews 1 verse 3, I'll read the whole verse. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and this is the part I want you to listen to, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Lord upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, by his sustaining providence, the Lord sustains all that is sustained. And when he stops sustaining, it stops being sustained. Now look at Ephesians 1. In the second half of Ephesians 1 verse 11, we see God's governing providence. So we've just seen his sustaining providence in Hebrews 1. Now we're looking at his governing providence in Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, and that is called his governing providence. Or maybe a more familiar verse, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that verse doesn't explicitly state that God is working all things. It says that all things work together for good for those that love God. But it begs the question, if all things work together for good for God's people, and we're told here that they do, well, how do they work together for good? Well, we've just seen in Ephesians 1 that God governs all things according to his, the counsel of his will. You put that together with Romans 8, and we see all things work together for our good because God governs all things, and he works them for our ultimate good. God does not just govern his people. He governs everything, and he governs everything for the good of his people. So the scriptures speak about God's providence on this grand scale, his sustenance and governance of everything in heaven and on earth, but also on a smaller scale with seemingly insignificant things such as Matthew 10, 29, which reads, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? So in Jesus' day, you could buy two sparrows for a penny. These are insignificant birds. You could probably still get them pretty cheap. And yet, none of them falls to the ground or dies apart from our Father in heaven who sustains and governs all things, both great and small. You've got the macro. You've got Christ 
sustaining everything, upholding the universe by the word of his power. You've got God governing everything according to the counsel of his will. And you've got the micro. You've got God caring for sparrows, not one of them falling to the ground apart from him. Even smaller than that, as R.C. Sproul has famously said, there's not one maverick molecule in all the universe that is outside of God's control. All right. Let's start to think about what this means for us. First, because of God's providence, we know that nothing is left to chance. Despite what Garth said, right? What did he say uh, in the song, The Dance? He said something about it's better left to chance. But uh, nothing is left to chance. Everyone and everything, indeed every moment, has purpose. Now, we don't always know the ins and outs of the purpose. We probably shouldn't go speculating about the purpose. We tend to do that, don't we? We, we tend to think, oh, well, this must mean this, or uh, God must be trying to say that. We don't know those things, but we do know the one whose purposes all things serve. He is our Father in heaven, and nothing is by chance. There's a great story that was told of Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which seated thousands of people who would come from all over to hear him preach. And um, when they moved into the tabernacle, you know, they didn't have microphones. They did everything uh, without sound equipment. So he was getting up in his pulpit. No one was in the uh, sanctuary that he knew of, but he was getting up in his pulpit to test the acoustics. And so he's getting on his preaching voice and he gets up there and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he goes on about his business. And uh, little did he know there was a man in the balcony that was sweeping the balcony. Just a man that worked there at the tabernacle. And when Spurgeon got to preaching, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this man was saved. God used that to convict his heart and he trusted in Christ. So it's a really a remarkable story, but in his providence, God had governed, you know, the birth and growth and maturity of these two men from different walks of life. He had given Spurgeon these amazing gifts to become, uh, he, was, he started preaching when he was 17 years old, but he becomes the, the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He had a door open for a job for this man who was sweeping the balcony, then you've got the, the growth of the church, the building of the tabernacle, on and on and on and on and on. God governs all things. So that on that day, their paths crossed. Spurgeon thought he was just testing acoustics. And this man thought he was just sweeping the balcony. But these were not random, insignificant events. In his providence, God was saving a soul and throwing a party in heaven. Now, that's a great story. But I think, I think it's pretty easy for us to realize that God works good things for good, right? Those are good things. That's, that's an easy story to listen to. Even in a situation like this Spurgeon and this man, I mean, that's, you know, it's remarkable, but it's, hey, God working good things for good. I think it's harder for us to comprehend how God works bad things for good. 
But let me just say about that, first of all, we're not meant to comprehend it all. We're meant to worship God for who he is. We're meant to believe him at his word and trust him to do his work, to work out all things according to his perfect providence, to govern all things according to the counsel of his perfect will. And I think we can tend to think because God has so graciously condescended to reveal something of who he is to us, that we are going to be able to fully comprehend who he is. But brothers and sisters, for the rest of eternity, we will be growing in our comprehension. And even then, he will always be the creator and we will always be the created. He will always be infinite and we will always be finite. He will always be the worshiped and we will always be the worshipers. So don't try to fully grasp how it all works. Might our knowledge of God's providence and our experience of God's providential dealings in our life for good or ill, might it lead us to humble ourselves before God? Might it lead us to depend on him in all things and to worship him all of our days? And as we do that, we will grow in our comprehension. But again, we will be growing in our comprehension from here into eternity. And I think we make a mistake uh, to throw up our hands because we don't get God. Even as much insight and wisdom as he's given us, things into which the angels long to look, the scripture said. But we're still like a thimble full of water next to the ocean. We, we, cannot only, we can only begin to comprehend who God is and what a gracious providence that he has revealed himself to us. So, of course, there are many questions about God's providence that we're not going to be able to answer. We speculate, we, we wonder. But, for instance, why does God sustain the wicked as long as he does? Why do the wicked prosper for a time. I've heard it said that from our vantage point, thinking about God's providence is like looking at the underside of a quilt. If you're stitching from the top and you've got all the loose threads hanging from the bottom, you know, you can look up and you can see something of the pattern. I can see what's going on there. But really what you see is the thread, and it doesn't look nearly as orderly as it looks from the top. If we were to see from God's vantage point, from the top of the quilt, and we will see from the top of the quilt when we get to glory, but all of our questions would, uh, we would be at ease, and, and we would understand. Until then, we look at the bottom of the quilt, And we trust God that he is who he says he is, that he's doing what he says he's doing, that he's working all things according to the counsel of his perfect will, and that he's working all things for the good of those that love him. So not only does God work good things for the good of his people, he works all things for the good of his people, and that includes, of course, bad things. So I want us to think about 
this in some macro ways and then in some smaller, more personal ways. On a larger cultural scale, thinking about God's governance of all things, working them out for the good of his people. Think about this. In the latter half of the 300s BC, Alexander was busy conquering the world. He was a wicked man with a lust for power who achieved astonishing success in attaining the power that he lusted after. He started by executing members of his own family so that he could take the throne, and he went on to conquer many kingdoms, killing untold thousands in his wake, most notably the Persians who were the world power at the time until Alexander and his Greeks. It was said that after 10 years of conquest, Alexander was on the brink of despair because there were no more lands to conquer. His lusts were still throbbing with nothing to satisfy. Because that's how lusts work, don't they? But that's another sermon. However, in the midst of all that wickedness, one of the things that Alexander was doing was spreading the Koine Greek language, which is the commoner's Greek. It was Greek for the common man to try to create a universal language in this kingdom, in his kingdom expansion. Well, Alexander soon died, and the Romans took over as the next great world power, and they would be the longest-lasting world power in the history of the world. So his kingdom was relatively short-lived, but the commoner's Greek remained. And in fact... It was a significant asset a couple hundred years later during Jesus' time. It was the language of the New Testament scriptures. And it was a common language that was throughout all the many lands surrounding them so that the gospel could easily be communicated to different people groups because everybody spoke Koine Greek. We see God governing even over and amidst the darkness for the good of his people. Next, uh, Dr. Young is in the middle of his Reformation history, so how about a couple more larger cultural examples from the time period leading up to the Reformation? Uh, Then we'll make some cultural applications for our own day and close by thinking a little bit more about God's providence in our own life. All right, so as Dr. Young mentioned last week, one of the rallying cries of the Reformation was post-Tenebrus Luke's, after darkness, light. The culture was swallowed up in the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church, but God was governing that darkness, preparing for the sun to come up in the fullness of time. One of the examples that Dr. Young mentioned in passing last week was the printing press, so I'll mention a little bit more about that. Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press in Germany in 1440, and by the early 1500s, it had spread all throughout Europe, and it had changed the world. It is still uh, thought to be one of the most significant inventions in world history. Then in 1517, about 80 years in the same country, after the invention of the printing press, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, and the Reformation spread from Germany throughout Europe. His 95 theses were mass produced. They were given to everybody. And it would simply have been impossible to do that without the invention of the printing press. 
And that's the way it was for all of Luther's writings, not to mention the Bibles that were translated into common people's language and spread throughout the land, not to mention other books like Calvin's Institutes, which uh, apart from the Bible was probably the most uh, influential book during the Reformation. On and on it goes. Now, granted, as Dr. Young said last week, the determining factor in all of this was that God had determined that it was the right time for the sun to come up, for the light of the gospel to shine throughout the land. But God was governing all things leading up to that point as well, including the creativity and opportunity for Johannes Gutenberg to invent the printing press in the early 1400s. God was governing the darkness, preparing for his light to shine. Another example of this is uh, in leading up to the Reformation is the development of what is called Catholic humanism. Now, this is not like secular humanism that we're more familiar with, where people are trying to create a worldview apart from God. Uh, you know, God was very much a part of their thought processes, however we might differ, but um, same name, different thing. Catholic humanism. It started in the early 1300s, lasted through the time of the Reformation, and many of the reformers were steeped in this way of thinking, in the philosophies of Catholic humanism. And one of the chief hallmarks of Catholic humanism was their effort to get back to the original text. And whatever it is that they were studying, one of the things that they were after is they wanted to get back to the original documents in their study. In fact, Erasmus is the most famous Catholic humanist who is most remembered in reform circles for his debates with Luther. You had the freedom of the will versus the bondage of the will, and that was kind of their most famous debate. But his most significant work was actually his development of the Greek New Testament, which was uh, top-notch scholarship for hundreds of years to come. And then here come the reformers in this culture. Again, the darkness is there, but God's governing the darkness, preparing for the light to shine. So the reformers are here, most of them educated in this Catholic humanist philosophy, trained to study the original text. Now, the Bible had been in Latin, which was not the original text, but they were concerned to get back to the original Hebrew and Greek in order to translate, not from the Latin, which is what a lot of people were doing, but from the original Hebrew and Greek. And as they were doing that, that's where the breakthroughs were coming from. That's when Luther was saying, oh, righteousness isn't about us and what we do. It's about God and what he gives. But that had been covered in this Latin language. And so they're getting back to the original. The point is, that started in the 1300s. And God was governing that. That became such a significant part of these academic communities that they were reared in. So it was just the air that they breathed when they started to get to you know, the, the Greek and Hebrew. God had prepared the way and governed the way for the light to shine. And of course, uh, the greatest example of God sustaining and governing the darkness in order to shine his light in the darkness is the death of Christ. Jesus was rejected. He was despised among men. The sinless son of God sentenced to an unjust death at the hands of sinful men. And in that respect, it was the darkest day in human history. 
And yet, in the providence of God, it was at the same time the greatest day of darkness and the greatest shining of light that the world had ever known. The greatest evil in human history, the death of the God-man at the hands of sinful men, used for the greatest good in human history, the salvation of the world. God sustaining and governing the darkness in order to shine his light in the darkness. And the darkness has not, it cannot, and it will not overcome it. So let's talk about our day. Because frankly, it's a little bit easier to believe in the providence of God when we're talking about days gone by. Uh, We see how it worked out. I mean, we at least see something of what God was up to. You know, we can look back and connect the dots. Greek language, spread of Christianity, common Greek. We can see uh, the printing press. Oh, yeah, I can see how that worked out, and God was doing that and governing all that. And then, oh, the Reformation was able to take off. And, of course, in uh, the death of Christ for the salvation of the world. But in our day, we can't connect the dots yet. We live by faith, not by sight. We don't get to see the whole picture. We don't get to see how everything works out. God asks us to trust him in his providence, to trust that all things are under his sovereign control, even when most things or many things seem out of control. Have you been on Facebook lately? To trust him that all things are being worked according to the counsel of his perfect will, that all things are being worked for the good of his people. And the same goes for our personal lives. We don't have the benefit of hindsight. It's easy to see, isn't it, when we look back on certain events in our life and we thought it was just the worst tragedy and it was, it was a tragedy or it was a very difficult time and yet when we can connect the dots, it's easier to rejoice in those things and see the wisdom and providence of God. But a lot of times we don't see that. A lot of times we're still trying to peer through the darkness waiting for more light to come in. but we can trust him. Did you notice a couple verses after Matthew 10, 29? said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, God cares for each one of these insignificant birds on an intimate scale. And he cares for you on a much more intimate scale. We see this in two ways in the passage. Number one, he is not called the sparrow's father. He is called your father and he just cares for the sparrows. Number two, your father has numbered all of the hairs on your head. In other words, He cares about the intimate and even seemingly insignificant details of your life. And not only does he care, but he sustains you through them and governs all things in your life according to the counsel of his perfect will for your good. 
So here we see that the providence of God is not just some distant truth about a distant force sustaining and governing the universe. That's the deist position, that God is just off in the distance and yeah, he, he does his thing and he created and sustains and, and all of that, but that's not our position at all. It is our Father who in his infinite wisdom and almighty power sustains and governs the universe. It is our Father who in his sovereign grace and steadfast love sent his Son to rescue us from our sin. It is our Father who in his tender compassion and startling humility cares about and works amidst the intimate, even seemingly insignificant details of our lives. Don't you know, brother and sister, that you are secure in your father's providential care for you? Don't you know that you are of supreme value to him? Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his hand but you are of much more value than they. He sent and slaughtered and raised his son because he loves you. He sustains all things and governs all things for your good. He numbered the hairs on your head. He worked his perfect providence through the intimate Details, some of them seemingly insignificant details, our own kind of sweeping the balcony to bring you to new life in Christ. He is with you always. He will never leave you nor forsake you, and he will work his perfect providence to bring you to glory in the end. In the meantime, he cares about the details of your life. He cares about the intimate details, the insignificant details, those things that you don't want to bring up to a friend because really they seem silly, but if you're honest, they weigh you down. The Lord is glad to take that burden from you over and over and over again, and he will go with you every step of the way. Do you love God? I mean, I know you don't love him perfectly, I know you don't love him perfectly. We all fail, but truly, do you love him? Then you can rest assured that he is working all things in your life according to his perfect providence, even those areas that seem out of control. He is completely in control, working all things according to his perfect counsel for your good. Some of God's providences in our lives are sweet, and some of them are bitter. But in all things, we can draw near to God in joyful submission. He is our Father. Whether with grief or with gratitude in our hearts, we can have thanksgiving on our lips and endure with patience in adversity because we know ultimately where things are going. And though we don't know how we're going to get there, We do know who's driving, and he can be trusted. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It is living and active. It is true. And we need it. Lord, we forget so quickly. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for your persistence with us and your grace and your love. Thank you for your patience with us. God, it is beyond our comprehension, your providence, what wonder it brings, and yet what security it brings, Lord. Thank you for the wisdom and insight you've given us. We pray for more. We pray for grace upon grace and strength for our faith. Lord, thank you for examples throughout history where we can look and see your providence fleshed out. And we we recognize that now, though, we don't see all the dots connected. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that these examples bring, but help us to trust you when we don't see them connected, when we're still waiting for the light to shine. Lord Jesus, we take greatest comfort in knowing that uh, you were swallowed up by darkness and in doing so, you swallowed it up. Thank you for rescuing us from our sin. Thank you for the hope that we have beyond the grave. And in the meantime, Lord, we trust that according to your perfect providence, you will get us home. Teach us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing and be thankful in all circumstances. For those that have bitter griefs pulsating in their hearts, Lord, would you tend to them as only you can. We thank you for this time together and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.